Maybe we should just talk about how 1917 is going to win Best Picture. Because that's a nice segue into uh, the Oscars as well. Yeah, so it's kind of like all of a sudden, I would say, like this weekend, it seems like 1917 has surged to the frontrunner status for Best Picture. and If only because it won Best Picture for that Producers Guild Awards or whatever it is. Yeah, and the PGA is like, you know, that's usually one of the best uh, precursor you know, things to use to, to judge what's going to win Best Picture. You know, in the past 10 years, uh, the winner of the PGA has gone on to win the Best Picture at the Oscars eight times. I think, oh, so I think 80, 80%. Yeah, I think overall history, I think it's 68% of the time the winner of the PGA right. Best Picture wins Best Picture for the Oscars. Right. So it's not guaranteed, but it's a pretty strong indicator. I don't know. I feel like it's a pretty wide open race. So any sort of clue or hint as to who may win Best Picture for the Oscars, I think we should take seriously. Yep. And, you know, uh, even though I found 1917, like, technically wonderful and super engrossing, um, it didn't really connect with me too much on an emotional level, but... Are you dead inside? <laughs> Are you? No, I'm not. No, I'm not dead inside. <laughs> what, what tells me that I'm not dead inside is uh, I would be very upset if something like Joker won Best Picture over something like 1917 right so oh my god all right cue the music let's get into the oscar noms because i have a bone to pick about joker okay all right Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. Here we are with episode 66, and it's our first episode since the announcement of the Oscar nominations, so that's going to be a bit of a theme uh, going into this episode, as you've already heard. Uh, We'll also be touching on the SAG Awards, which, as of the recording of this episode, are ongoing. Uh, They haven't even finished reading them all out yet. And we're going to touch on a couple of the new movies that we've seen that have uh, hit theaters uh, this past weekend, including Do Little and Bad Boys for Life. But without any further ado, my name is Robert Snow, coming to you from Toronto, and I'm joined by my co-host in Vancouver, Jason Chen. So this uh, Oscar noms thing, like, I I think when they rolled out uh, this past week, the word that sprung to mind was like, boring. They were just kind of boring. I didn't I didn't feel like a huge amount. Normally, I get kind of excited to see who's going to be on the, those final short lists. But this time I was like, Pfft. now, is that a reflection of the movies we've had this year or is it just the names that they picked? Just the names that we picked, I think. Yeah, I was I was hoping for stuff like The Farewell or Ad Astra or Uncut Gems or, you know, any of the things that I put in my top 10, but I, right, you okay. know, and while I did see a few things from my uh, 2019 top 10 in there, like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman and things like that, well, even The Irishman wasn't really in my top 10, but anyway, top 15, there were still like some of the things that I like, I really connected with were just totally ignored and it instead yes. it like just went to stuff like joker getting the most nominations out of every movie like oh my god what a travesty eh i don't i don't understand that like i think when they expanded best picture to like however nominees they are i think it's 10 right yeah it can it's a best picture is such a weird um category because it can actually vary from year to year depending on yeah various checks and balances in the system but yeah it has been as many as 10 but as few recently as like six or seven yeah so when you 
have such a wide open race, I kind of half expected Joker to be there. I did not expect it to lead the nominations. Yeah, I would have expected it to be in there like for maybe, I don't know, five or six. A couple. Yeah, yeah, a couple. And I agree with you. I think there are so many better films that were just shut out just because I think the Academy is once again going like super conservative. Joker, I feel like, is their way of being edgy. Like, hey, look at us nominating this comic R-rated comic book film. Um, this is kind of them saying like, hey, we understand the Dark Knight and Black Panther were previous best pictures, but in our opinion, this is the pinnacle of comic book movies, which it really isn't. Mm. Um, my bigger gripe is that, like you, a lot of great movies and great filmmakers were shut out. I, I'm looking at the list now, and the best director category just jumps out at me. Yeah, for sure. Todd Phillips for best director is the biggest sham in the entire world. Yep. Like, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I have nothing against him personally. Are you sure about that? Because uh, he, I don't know, he's, he's some of his comments make it seem like he's a little bit of a, uh, a snarky bastard. W- whatever. Anyway, the fact that uh, it was even considered for best director is baffling to me because I think so many other directors have taken risks uh, and pulled them off. So the Safdie brothers, uh, mm-hmm. Lulu Wong, Greta Gerwig. I, there's like a handful of other directors who I think are far more deserving of his spot. I think this is a pretty tough category to crack, but wow, the bar is all over the place. I, I don't believe it. Even Bombshell, like how do how does it clean up or how does it get so many nominations in these categories? Like Margot Robbie, was she really in it that much? I mean, <laughs> yeah, and I, I haven't seen Bombshell, so I can't, uh, you know, it's it's on my watch list for, you know, before the ceremony. But, but yeah, and it's, you know, and they're perilously close to that um, hashtag of uh, Oscar so white again. You know, they have one person of color between Oscar so male, too. Yeah, but they have one person of color between the the four main a- uh, the four acting categories. And mm-hmm. that that's at a time when you have like Lupita Nyong'o in Us or uh, Aquafina in The Farewell and so many other great uh, performances from from people of color. And it's just I've never seen such a stark difference between this and the Golden Globes. Mm. Like a- as much as we don't like the Golden Globes, there is some sort of like crossover in that the two bodies generally kind of agree on uh, what are the best performances, at least the nominations wise. Yep. But, but like, Taron Egerton getting shut out of Best Actor, I don't know. I haven't seen Pain and Glory with Antonio Banderas, so I can't really say. But Aquafina in Best Actress, I feel like, was a huge snub. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a, a lot of love for... And J-Lo. There's yeah. a lot of internet outcry over exactly J-Lo. Though. And I thought the Academy loves this kind of stuff, like crossover stars. And some people were saying that, hey, it's because the Academy didn't like what J-Lo did after... Uh, a few of her movies in the 90s where she became like this uh, socialite celebrity with no talent. Uh, but, I mean, it's just like, are you really going to punish them for that? And by the same token, they were talking about how Ben Affleck was punished for going out with her when he was, I guess he hasn't made a movie in a while, but like kind of is like directing peak Ford v. Ferrari. Another like really generic in my opinion, not so risky film that made it as a best picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. So in my, in my opinion, the only ones who really deserve to be there, knowing that I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit or Little Woman, are Marriage Story 1917, Once Upon a Time Hollywood, and Parasite, and maybe Irishman. Yeah, um, Those are the only real movies that I feel like belong there. And it seems like 
in a year like this, it, it's so hard for me to pick the number one film. Right now, it's between 1917 and Parasite, but it looks like 1917 would win. Hollywood loves these war films. Yeah, it's, um, you know, for, for a movie that... To be honest, I didn't even know it was in production until the trailer came out, and then it's kind of surged to the front. I mean, it's it's impressive that it's I, I don't know who is running the uh, the campaign behind this movie, but I hope they get a huge bonus for it because uh, I would have I would have pinned my bet on pretty much any other movie in that uh, in that category before that one. But anyway, um, were you a little surprised Knives Out didn't get as much attention? Like. Awards wise, it's really only mentioned in uh, best original screenplay, isn't it? Yes, that's right. You know, and well, best original screenplay, as we've pointed out a lot of times in the past, you know, it's kind of like the consolation prize category where, you know, uh, they the nominations tend to go to movies that arguably belong in best picture, but right. are forced out by some of the more obvious uh, nominees. But even like some of the awards that award um, ensemble casts, Knives Out, surprisingly, nowhere to be seen. Like uh, for the rest of the writing categories, you know, you've got stuff like Marriage Story. That makes sense. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sure. Parasite, of course. 1917 as best original screenplay strikes me as odd because it is a very plot wise and character wise. It's very formulaic and very derivative. Yeah. Well, I mean, original being the sense of like, you know, it's not based on pre-existing work. True. But at the same time, like, is it really that original? I, I feel like we've seen suicide missions in war movies forever. Oh, you mean like, uh, does it deserve to get a nomination in that category at all? Exactly. That was an odd one to me. Yeah, certainly put up against like some of the uh, the other stuff that we're seeing in the best picture category. Then no, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you there. Yeah, if like Uncut Gems or The Farewell were nominated, this would be the category it should be in. Yes, yeah. Especially The Farewell, where you're dealing with like multiple cultures and languages and whatnot, like... Come on, like that's such a no-brainer. Like, do people not realize how hard it is to write a script like that sometimes? For sure, yeah. And uh, or even like in adapted. Okay, yeah. So Little Women got it uh, nominated for best uh, adapted screenplay, which is good to yes. see. I would have yeah. preferred to see Greta Gerwig over like m- way more of these categories, naturally in directing, but uh, um, it feels like that's going to get shut out, which is a hugely annoying thing because <laughs> that movie is great. Uh, it's one of like the the coziest movies you'll ever watch. Everyone's just walking around constantly wrapped in these big blankets and having like feasts and dancing and, you know, lots of um, idyllic Americana type uh, experiences. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's it's very cheerful. But yeah, I don't know. Like this. This is the first year that I can remember being just a little bit kind of jaded, jaded angry. about it. Um, I don't know if that's join the club. Join the club, Robert. Join the club. <laughs> But it's a it's an annoying club to be what? in because I want the Oscars to to I want the Oscars to be like a little bit better and I feel like oh my the God. previous years I, I it's Rob like, you're it's, just setting yourself for future disappointment for the rest of your life like it, like no award show is ever gonna be perfect and it, no, no award show no. is ever gonna actually award the best in category it's always political like even awards for something as like visual as i don't know like sports you you can debate all day and they still make some like really bad picks sure yeah yeah yeah. so uh but this i agree with you like this year in general is just like a a lot of eyebrow raises yeah and and you know with with the sags kind of going on right now it's kind of giving us a sense of where some of the the acting categories are going to go so you know it's it's with brad pitt picking up the best supporting actor trophy um 
at the SAGs. He's probably the front runner now for the, the Oscar if he wasn't already. Same thing for Laura Dern and Best Supporting Actress. I think for Best Supporting Actor, I think with for the the Oscars, I mean, I think it's Brad Pitt by quite a margin. I thought Al Pacino was good, but not Brad Pitt good. Uh, Laura Dern is obviously a front runner, and I, I can see her winning. Yeah. Netflix kind of shot themselves in the foot with nominating both Pacino and Pesci against each other. Um, because they're going to kind of split the Irishman vote, I think. Yeah, maybe. But I didn't think Pesci was that good. I'm actually kind of, I was kind of relieved De Niro didn't get nominated, actually, because I didn't think he was as good as Pacino. No, I agree. Yeah. And then for leading role, I mean, my favorite of the bunch right now is probably Adam Driver. I would love to see him get it. But it's going to be Joaquin I Phoenix. I think Joaquin yeah. Phoenix. Yeah, I feel like he it's between Adam Driver and Joaquin Phoenix at this point. See, like if Joker walks away with an award, I hope it's this one because I feel like this is the most deserving. Yeah. Of all the ones they've they've been nominated for. I feel like this if they're going to win for one, it should be this. Um, I thought Jonathan Price was great. Though. Yeah, I haven't seen the two pups yet. I was planning to start it uh, the oh, next okay. couple of days, but I still have like at least 10 movies to watch before the uh, the telecast. Yeah, it's uh, I, just real quick. I, I don't think it's a very strong film. I think Fernando Morales, who did City of God, which is excellent, mm-hmm. does too many weird decisions with this one. He Tonally, um, I don't think it was very consistent. And mm. if not for Price and Hopkins really carrying this movie, this would be an absolute bore. Mm. But Price was so good. He was really good. Uh, but Hopkins, not so much, but... Uh, I mean, as an old dude playing an aging pope, I feel like, you know, it was tailor-made for him. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, rounding out the the actress category, uh, I have a feeling right now, I think maybe it'll be... Maybe it's Saoirse Ronan's year. Really, eh? Maybe they'll kind of they'll kind of like go consolation prize again, to use that phrase, uh, for Little Women, because it hasn't... It probably won't win Best Picture, and it probably won't win Best Director, so is, maybe it'll go to Saoirse Ronan. It, I mean, Charlie Theron's already won, so that hurts her chances a bit. I was going to say, do you think Renee Zellweger is the dark horse? Uh, she, Yeah, I would I would say she's the dark horse. In the same way that, like, last year... Was it last year that Glenn Close kind of came from behind and, and snagged it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for, a, for a movie that, like, nobody had seen in, in The Wife... Um, like this is a similar situation where Renee Zellweger is like doing a fantastic performance in an other in an otherwise kind of like limp movie, mm-hmm. and uh, it's possible that she would kind of pop up from behind and, and grab it. Um, I don't I don't really having not seen Harriet, I can't say anything about Cynthia Arrivo. I to me it feels like Harriet's and kind of like Judy in the sense of like great central performance, not that much else going on around it. Wait, when did Glenn Close win again? She won last year for Best Actress. Yeah. No, she didn't. Oh, wait, no, that doesn't make any sense. That's Olivia Coleman won last year. Glenn Close didn't win. Oh, that's right. Okay, no, yeah, I'm misremembering. So th- this is why I'm the worst person for... She won for another, like, award. Yeah, she had won... Award show. I think she, she was the... F- was it SAG? Might have been the SAG, and that made her the front runner for Best Actress at the Oscars, but then it was a surprise that she didn't win. Maybe that's what it was. Yes, okay, so she she won the Golden Globe, the SAG, and the Critics' right. Choice. Right, okay, that's how it was. Okay. But she didn't win the BAFTA or the Oscar. That's what Olivia Coleman was a great choice. She was a great choice. Yeah. But but anyway, like there was a surprise around Glenn Close's thing. And um, I think maybe the uh, again, that that happens a lot where you get these uh, movies popping up in the acting categories that aren't popping up in, in any of the other ones. And usually it's just because it's the the movie is kind of constructed around that performance. It, I think there are a lot of performances from films that may not be Oscar material that are deserving of acting like 
it wasn't too long ago Ethan Hawke was like completely ignored for First Reformed. And First Reformed was a movie that like I don't think anybody saw, right? And look at uh last year when Rami Malik won for Bohemian Rhapsody. That was a movie oh. that everyone saw. Everyone saw in it. Yeah, I mean, and he was I don't fine know if it, he was but... actually the the best actor. Like that movie has not aged well either, eh? I mean, it wasn't good when it came out either. Right? Well, oh, true. Okay, okay, yes, true. It wasn't good when it first came out. That's right. Yeah. Even something like The Florida Project I thought was fantastic and it's made a bunch of like top of the decade list and it got no love either so yeah i mean yeah. we could go on and on forever right <laughs> yeah but uh i do want to ask you about um cinematography because i i think this oh, is a really like yeah. tough category so again Roderick deacons for 1917 he has to be the front runner right so we got the irishman with rodrigo prieto joker with lawrence Scher. The Lighthouse, Jaron Blaschke, which I think might be a dark horse. I didn't, I'm didn't. i surprised The Lighthouse didn't get more, by the way. Um, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with uh, Robert Richardson. Deacons is like, the, the the he's got the most name recognition. And I think 1917 just looks so good, though. He's got the, the name recognition, you're right. He's got the fact that he was nominated a whole raft of times before, and he only won for the first time for Blade Runner 2049. And it was a very hard job for 1917, too. Yeah, and he and he has that like technical thing on his side, you know, in the same way that um, Emmanuel Lizbeski, who's the uh, the frequent collaborator of uh, Alejandro Inarritu, yes, he Revenant. won, like, what was it, two or three years in a row? Something like that. It's not uncommon for cinematographers to pick up uh, Oscars very close to each other um, year over year. Right. But correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Ad Astra really, like, praised for its cinematography as well? Yes, and the fact that it's not there is like, you know, I mean, Lawrence Scher, I've seen videos of him describing his process on Joker, and um, he seems like a amiable guy, and, you know, I, I don't I don't discount his, his skill, but I feel like, again, that movie is stealing things from other better movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Joker and Irishman are, I think, two of the weaker entries in that one. And, and with the Irishman, it's interesting because I feel like I don't know that it's necessarily the like the the lighting or the framing or anything that's really advancing its cause. It's actually the the extra stuff they had to do on set to make the de-aging work. So which didn't work that well, well it didn't work that well. But what they had to do with the cameras and then, of course, that's, you know, where the cinematographer is. Right. Is right. King, yes. okay. the, the cameras, they actually had to mount three cameras next to each other. Yes. And they had to shoot uh, two of the cameras in infrared so that they could get the performance information they needed to do the de-aging yeah, and the lighting, whether or not the de-aging works for you on like an emotional or creative level is is one thing. But uh, um, in terms of like what they had to figure out, technically speaking, that's possibly why Rodrigo Prieto might uh, is in there. I don't know that he'll win, but yeah. Shockingly, Cats was not in this. Oh, shockingly, yeah. Despite their, um, what was it, like the edited, retouched up CGI footage they sent out to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, just, um, you know, the movie's not quite done yet. Let's, uh, here's a new version, you know, just, uh, we just cleaned it up a little bit, you know, uh, uh, pay no attention to uh, the, the other thing that we said was the final one. Yeah. yeah. That's like kind of uh, titling your um, uh, your school book report, like book report, final, final, and then final with an extra like all caps and then V5. <laughs> um, or like you hand one in when at the deadline and then you hand one in the next day and you're just like, ah, oh, like the one I handed in wasn't that good. So yeah, please consider yeah. this my final one. So it's kind of like... Not I, a great precedent for movie I, I can't believe they let them do that though. That's just hilarious. The Cats thing is a, a fun little segue now that I think about it, to a movie that I saw 
uh, this weekend that <laughs> I honestly like, you know, I, I like to go see terrible movies sometimes. Um, partly. Did you know it was going to be bad going I did. In? And, you know, some people will say, oh, well, you went in biased and blah, blah, blah. And you you had your mindset against the movie from the start. Uh, I don't know. That's that's debatable. It's best but, part. Uh, and sometimes it's, it is legitimately hard to avoid on social media, you know, finding out what the consensus is on a movie. But this was something that even if I only had the trailer to go on, I, I think I probably would have had incredibly low expectations because the trailer the trailer came out in <laughs> yeah. mid-fall of 2019 and I'll be damned if I know what that trailer was trying to communicate it <laughs> it was it was put together seemingly by um coke addicted monkeys I I've never seen anything quite well, so, I, so much of a shambles before I, I will say this like having seen Robert Downey Jr. in the trailer I wasn't sure if he was trying to be like a coked up Sherlock Holmes or like Tony Stark in a period play. We've no choice but to embark on this perilous journey. Everyone pack your bags! (laughs) You can talk to animals. The movie we're talking about in this case is Doolittle. This is the the newest version of the Doctor Doolittle story. You know, it um, originated in a series of stories um, by it's never done well. Uh, Hugh Lofting, I believe, is the author's name, uh, originating in the twenties and thirties, and it's been made into you know, it's one of these stories that's been adapted into countless like animated series and kids movies, um, the Eddie Murphy movies from the mid two thousands, and now this thing with Robert Downey Jr. What we've got here is, as you were pointing out, Robert Downey Jr. doing weirdly like a worse version of his already kind of shifty uh, accent from the Sherlock Holmes Guy Ritchie movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But this time it sounds like his dialect is touching down in every um, part of the British Isles and then taking a little bit of a wander through continental Europe and ending up somewhere in Poland. (laughs) Um, It's... It's 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 shockingly bad, and for a movie that literally cost uh, 175 million dollars, I can't believe that some of that didn't go to a dialect coach, and that Danny <laughs> Jr. didn't know, didn't insist on having one if he didn't think that he could do the accent. But that's the least of this movie's problems. Uh, we've got CGI animals with very shoddy lip sync being voiced by like. A, a roster of names that would blow your mind in terms of like star power. You've got Kumail Nanjiani, John Cena, uh, Emma Thompson, Craig Robinson, all sorts of like marquee names that were pretty much only hired easy paychecks. Yeah, that's probably why they did it. But they were put they were chosen by the production so that they could add a bit of name value to the poster and kind of pull you in. It's like, oh, hey, who wants to see Kumail Nanjiani voice a, a nervous ostrich? I guess I do. Just like to, to tack on that point just real quick. I can't remember what I was watching or reading, but there was someone someone talking about how like fi- animated films are only getting big names so they can sell it. Mm-hmm. They're not getting people who are known for voice acting. And that often is usually stage or theater actors. 
um, who can really enunciate and really express a lot of feeling through their words because more often than not, you're sitting so far away from the stage, you can't see their faces. Right. So uh, I think this is just like another symptom of that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're probably not too far off the case here. I mean, again, this is a movie with so many things going wrong all at once that it's hard to put your finger on all of them. But, you know, the story is supposed to follow the classic Dr. Doolittle arc of a man who can talk to animals and he communicates with them in their own languages. You know, if he's talking to a gorilla, he's thumping his chest. If he's talking to a polar bear, he's roaring like a polar bear. And he's sequestered himself away in his mansion, which is provided to him by Queen Victoria. Um, This is set in Victorian England, in case you're curious. And he, his wife has a famous explorer, but she dies on one of her voyages, and this sends him into a pit of depression, and he grows out all of his hair, he shuts himself off from society, and refuses to take any new patients. Of course, giving Downey Jr. an, a, a, an excuse to wear this frightful-looking wig and gigantic <laughs> beard for the opening scene, and, you know, then shave it all off. The action of the movie gets started when we're introduced to kind of the audience proxy, a young boy named Stubbins, who... <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's his name. Um, who is he's a he's a kid who's like out on a hunting trip with his uncle and his cousin, and they're trying to get him to man up and uh, you know uh, kill some animals. So they try to get him to shoot some ducks with a shotgun. He tries to miss on purpose, but he accidentally shoots a squirrel on a nearby tree, and he just so happens to be within walking distance of the Dr. Doolittle mansion. So he bundles up the squirrel and makes his way inside, discovers this menagerie of all these different creatures that Doolittle lives with and convinces Doolittle to rescue the squirrel. Um, You know, some more business about a royal emissary. Queen Victoria has been poisoned by some rare plant. Um, they, They have to go on a voyage to find this magical fruit of the Eden tree and uh, there's some evil bureaucrats chasing them in a warship it it gets out of out of control very quickly <laughs> the, the the main thing to understand about this movie is that it was in production hell <gasps> I love these stories. The director they hired was uh, Stephen Gagan, who most people... Oh, right. Will, the traffic... Yeah. Tra- or no, the writer uh, dude. He, write, he wrote Traffic, I believe, uh, with Steven Soderbergh or for Steven Soderbergh. And then uh, pr- prior to now, the really the only main credit people would know him from is Siriano, which is an espionage slash political movie, which actually got... George Clooney, his best supporting actor trophy. Um, so it was a it was a well received movie, but it's just like leagues separated from something like Doolittle. And I think Stephen Gagan has long been known as like a journeyman type director who's kind of brought in to do projects with it. He doesn't really, you know, people can't point at something and say, yes, that's a Stephen Gagan film. Um, and from all the reports. Some of them may have been made up or, you know, exaggerated so that they would get some traction online. Sounds like the dude was in way over his head. He treated everyone (laughs) on the set poorly. He didn't know how to handle the uh, requirements of a big VFX heavy shoot with digital animals. You know, he was uh, changing things last minute, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Universal ended up firing him, replacing him with uh, the guy who made the Clash of the Titans movies with Sam Worthington. He did the Ninja Turtles movie movies which were a mess as well <laughs> yeah but apparently he's a uh, he's the guy that a universal trusted to try to fix this movie in production and you know they brought him in expensive reshoots all of that um and you know the resulting movie has just been cobbled together like some sort of uh you know 
a half-baked, throw everything at the wall, see what it sticks kind of thing. But the sequence in the movie that probably best sums up the entire experience with, you know, it's anachronistic dialogue, it's uh, poorly animated, poorly lip-synced animals, and it's like very odd and off-putting sense of humor is a sequence in the climax of the movie when Robert Downey Jr. has encountered a dragon that's protecting the magical fruit that he's got to find. But the dragon has eaten too many dudes wearing sharp objects, and it's got armor stuck in its ass. (laughs) So... A sequence hey, of... Hey, this is a uh, very original problem that I haven't seen. <laughs> true, yeah. So you, so it makes kind of sense. I, I appreciate the originality of it and the yeah, common sense so of it. What we're treated to is a scene of Robert Downey Jr. Uh, with his hands up a dragon's ass. And, uh, like, of course, none of it is real. It's all done. You know, it's Robert Downey Jr. is just probably standing there on a set looking at, like, nothing. But they've put in this dragon and he's like puffing and blowing and you know doing his stupid weird accent and he finally extricates an intact pair of bagpipes which inflate and go you know and then they cut to the polar bear voiced by john cena who puts a thumb up i think and he says respect (laughs) i don't even i don't even know why i'm laughing that punchline makes no sense exactly and that's the whole thing of this movie is weird cutaways to lines that don't make any sense in context behavior from characters that uh, feels like an alien wrote the script it it is uh, it is very possibly the worst movie of 2020 or one of them and it's only january (laughs) we're not even through january (laughs) <laughs> you know, setting the low lights. The, when we're when we reconvene this conversation in uh, December or January of next year, we're kind of running through what we hated the most. This <laughs> might still be there. So, uh, yeah, that was my that was my Saturday. Don't see Doolittle, please well, don't. <laughs> when you put it that way, I feel like I kind of want to see it now. <laughs> I I too like hate watching movies, and I thought I was going to do that with Bad Boys for Life. Oh yeah, so like I I was convinced that this was going to flop you know this had a this had a movie right you know it's one of these cases where they have a successful couple of movies in a series and then don't make one for like 10 or 15 years and then decide to reboot it usually that's like not starting off on a good foot yeah usually that's a death knell right so i don't know have you ever seen the first two no i i i've seen clips from them i get the whole general michael bayness of them Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's true. This is kind of like, I think the franchise that really put Michael Bay like into the upper echelon in terms of uh, action films. Anyway, so so this was a film I watched uh, when I was a kid because the first one came out in 95. So I didn't see it in theaters, but my cousin, who's quite a bit, a few years older than me, he, he, he watched it and I usually watch movies with him. So I always get roped in right. to these like movies, uh, that I shouldn't be watching at that age. It was, re- the first one was quite good. The second one was not good. The third one, surprisingly good. I'm done, Mike. I'm retiring. Uh oh, here we go again. You want your legacy to be muscle shirts and body counts? Look at this mess. It's carnage. I didn't do all this. You didn't shoot anybody? Well, come on, Captain. You know I shot some people. Yeah. I walked out of there thinking, like, you know what? Like, I got what I wanted. It met my expectations. Kind of exceeded them a little bit. And I walked out there feeling pretty good. I walked in not knowing anything. And I... So I'm curious. I'm like, where do I stand against the general public? 
and it's 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I was really And I was surprised. like, whoa, okay. And I was like, okay, so one, I realized that there was an appetite for this kind of film. And two, that like, I think when it comes to mindless fun, there's always, uh, like, if you know you're going to get mindless fun, if it meets your expectations, then it, by definition, it's a good movie because it does what it's supposed to accomplish. Right, right. This one, again, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence team up. 17 years after the re- the sequel and they play two Miami PD cops who are basically action heroes and sort of this mysterious threat from the past comes up Martin Lawrence again plays more of the straight guy where he's like ah, I don't know about this cop stuff I want to retire I'm a grandpa now I want to enjoy my life mm. Will Smith plays every other Will Smith character in which he's this you know, sunglasses wearing in his uh, suit all the time type cop who has all these like funny one-liners and he's trying to be all hip and cool and stuff all the time. So they're naturally good foils for each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, the plot, I won't bore you, but I mean, they go around, shoot people, bad guys want to kill them. They hunt after bad guys. There's a couple team ups. There's some jokes here and there. Um, There's a, a bit of a boring love story in there. Um, but what I thought that really elevated this one was that I didn't think we'd miss the banter between Lawrence and Smith so much. They really do have a really funny chemistry together. Um, they can make any jokes be kind of funny because it, it's kind of like uh, The Rock where he can read lines and make them sound funny or cool when most people can't. Yeah, he's just got that kind <laughs> of like... There's just this quality. Yeah, yeah there's the, the screen presence, the, the personality, the look that makes it work. The other thing that I kind of thought elevated this was the villain, um, who's played by Kate Del Castillo, and it's the first time this franchise has had a female villain, not unlike Fast and the Furious. And in fact, this series, I have a feeling, is going to go the Fast and Furious route, where the main characters are superheroes, and there's team-ups, and all that, all that kind of stuff. Oh, so you get a sense of, like, you know, they've this series might still have legs, and the, they'll do spinoffs and stuff. But yeah, the fourth one is already in production, and, and seeing how well this movie did... Um, has done I don't see any reason not to put a fourth movie into production but she plays this sort of wife of a drug cartel leader who is into like voodoo witchcraft oh and so she's bringing this like sort of like comic villain feel to it and she's you know like got these nails and she's got these incense going and it's pretty cool and there's one scene where she escapes from jail and it's pretty gory and shocking and i thought it was very well done um but if you're looking for a movie that's just like mindless fun i think this is a fine movie i think it's i think it's way better than doolittle by the sounds of it you know doolittle probably didn't have a lot of expectations to clear but uh yeah this is they probably like people probably considered the two movies going into them to be like roughly on the same keel but it's it's funny to see how bad boys three or bad boys for life has kind of like vaulted over expectations and and kind of reestablished itself yeah even now the one thing that i that i remember about the clips from bad boys uh one and two that i have seen is that they because it's Michael Bay behind the helm. Uh, he not this one, not this one, but but the previous two, and it was that time in in his career. Well, arguably his entire career is like this, but anyway, <laughs> the the objectification of women though is pretty awful in his movies generally. And I get that you know he's not you're not he's not endorsing this behavior. He's showing characters who 
believe this stuff or and you know who who behave this way so did did they change that at all in this one or is it just kind of like i didn't find it misogynistic at all well not not necessarily misogynistic but like does it um does the camera leer at any of the women or the love interests in the same way that it did in previous movies um that is a very interesting question because I feel like any movie that's set in Miami has a tendency to do that. <laughs> Something about the Miami nightclub scene forces you to like leer at one or wants you to leer at one. <laughs> I can't think of a single cop movie. I'm serious. That takes place in a Miami nightclub that doesn't leer at woman. I think this like of all the movies that do that, I don't think Bad Boys is it's definitely not the worst offender. If anything, I feel like it's very not non-existent, but you don't really notice it that much. Well, the, the reason I'm I'm chuckling to myself is I'm reminded of the again my one of my my constant callbacks, Dewey Cox, where uh, there's an early scene where he's first getting his start, uh, and uh, he's working at this this bar where the owner says, "Bullhicky, people come here to dance erotically. I ain't got no music. I ain't got no nightclub." <laughs> yeah, so there's there's none of that. Uh, well, not none, but very very minimal. Even in the previous two films, it does leer a bit. I'm kind of like, my memory is kind of like not so good because it's been so long ago. But even in the first one, it didn't leer very much because Taya Leone was the sort of the female lead in the first film. And she was like this kind of badass character. Mm. Um, There is leering in the sense that these, a lot of these women that they, they, they uh, show are like, you know, drug mules, uh, hookers, escorts, people who hang around with cartels. Mm. Um, so naturally, I, I think there is a objectification of women in the film because it's also done in that particular right, right industry, I guess you could say. But it's not offensive. Yeah, that, that was just the one thing that it, like I'd picked up on, like other than the gunplay and the cars and, you know, the, the ridiculous, you know, or not ridiculous, but uh, the knowingly ridiculous uh, action that the, that the other movies are known for. For. I, I remember that being a, a part of it as well, but but you make a good point. Like it's, you know, some sometimes these movies do take place in locations where that's just kind of part of the territory. Yeah, exactly. I I don't think it's any worse than fa- any of the Fast and the Furious films. In fact, I think the Fast and Furious films are kind of kind of worse for it. Yeah, yeah, they they're still doing it even years later. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I highly, I actually recommend you watch the first one, um, if only to see like the, how the sort of trademark shots came to be, like the Hero 360 yeah, yeah. shot that Michael Bay is famous for, and uh, and this one, I think if you can catch it on streaming, if you're looking for some action fun, it's not that bad. Coming out of that, um, we'll close out this episode just by kind of casting our attention ahead to uh, the rest of 2020. We mentioned a few things, uh, the, the tail end of last mm. episode very briefly, but actually uh, plug to the, the website, kinetoscope.ca. Uh, Jason prepared a arguably exhaustive list of the, <laughs> it took a while. Yeah, I mean, you can tell there's what, like easily like 24, 25, 30 different movies on this list. Oh my, I would say more than that, yeah. But roughly, roughly, yes. I picked the ones that I thought were interesting to me and, and for the general public, I guess. Yeah, and I gotta say, like, if I was making the same list, I probably would have uh, chosen all the same ones because there's a, there's a great selection of, like, horror and thriller, uh, genre stuff, um, you know, uh, dramas, uh, big blockbusters. So... Head on over to the the site if you want to get like full write ups or full little capsule descriptions for all of these movies that uh, we might be talking about here. But a couple of the ones that that really jumped off the the page for me, there would be 
uh, After Yang. Yeah, that one. I th- I figured you'd like that one from Coconada. Uh, I was I was very I was like totally over the moon uh, by Columbus, his last feature, uh, his first feature actually, I guess. Yeah. And I. I was just so struck by the cinematography, the performances, uh, the message of the movie was uh, what really connected with me. Um, I know you didn't like it quite as much as I did, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm very curious to see what he would do with Colin Farrell as a uh, as an actor who he's got in this. And one. Haley Lou is really under- underrated. Yeah. And uh, uh, did you ever see Girls? Uh, Help the or Girls. Not, what was it? Yeah, I did see Help the Girls. Yeah, yes. It, um, yes. Yeah. So she was good in that too, and it was a really quite a yeah. And she a nice she film. shows off her range very well between those different performances and yes. Uh, uh, so very much so. The yeah, that's a uh, that's an immediate um, one that I'm I'm looking forward to. Doesn't does it have a date yet when it's coming out? No, no release date. Okay. But it's a twenty four. A twenty four. I think they just for whatever reason they don't really set. Uh, release dates really far ahead into the future like Marvel and Disney do chaos walking yeah this is one that I I'm <laughs> curious about for the same reason that I went to see Doolittle where right uh, it has been a, like a legendary troubled production I haven't seen any like very specific stories coming off the set yet but <laughs> very much it, under wraps <laughs> it was like it had a release date and then it was the release date was Pushed and then reshoots were scheduled long after the movie had originally been completed, which is an even worse sign. I mean, it's one thing to book reshoots for, you know, maybe a month or two after principal mm-hmm. production, but seemingly like a year or more after, that's a really bad sign. This, yeah, it's too bad that Doug Lyman has to be kind of bound up in this because he can be a very good director with the right material. I, I don't have high hopes for it, but I'm really curious to see what comes out of it. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, go scrolling further down the list. It's it's all in alphabetical order. If, you, if you're looking for a movie, that's, that's how it's sorted. But uh, I've mentioned Dune already a bunch. I'm super excited for that. One of the best casts ever. I'm going to make sure to have read the original Frank Herbert novel by the time this one comes out because I'm very curious to see, you know, Compare it against David Lynch's version from the 80s and uh, all of that. French Dispatch, obviously, you know, I'm a guy who has a giant Wes Anderson print above his desk at his office. So uh, (laughs) the, you know, it's uh, whatever that is, even if it's the exact same Wes Anderson experience, I'll be happy. I don't care. You know, it is. Yeah. You know, it's going to be the exact, but he he pulls it off. He's very good at what he does. Yeah. Um, And this is arguably, I feel like the biggest A-list ensemble all-star heavy hitter cast he's ever had. Right. The Last Duel is interesting to me. Uh, I love... like. Oh, my God. This is going to be really good or really bad. It's Ridley Scott, but he's working for Disney, so I don't know... December 25th release date, so it's yeah. a feel-good film. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are writing this, so it should be good, but then they're playing French people, and you're like, Ben Affleck can't do anything but play a guy from Boston. <laughs> and But Adam Driver's in this, so maybe he can pull it off. Matt Damon, I know, speaks Spanish, so maybe he can speak French okay, but oh my goodness, <laughs> this could be a disaster if they are not careful. Yeah, so uh, that's that's one to keep your eye on, but maybe don't get your hopes up too high. <laughs> Last Night in Soho, the new uh, Edgar Wright movie, very curious to see what he does with that. It's uh, He sounds like he's working in the psychological thriller kind of world, which mm-hmm. he touched on in some of his other works, but not uh, in like a full-hearted way. So it to, to see him like uh, team up with... Anya Taylor-Joy is going to be cool, too. I've been following her work recently. She's got a lot. Uh, she's got a lot of movies coming out the, just this year between exactly. this, um, the new Jane Austen adaptation, Emma, and then the fi- the long-delayed uh, New Mutants. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Mank, I thought this one might interest you. It does, yeah. Gary Oldman, like, he's got to be good, right? So Yeah, and working with David Fincher and, you know, in the context of, like, something made for Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, they're pro- they're they're definitely trying to keep their deck constantly stacked with uh, awards contenders, you know, anything that's about Hollywood, especially old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is about uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz, who's a uh, legendary uh, figure in early Hollywood. So it's got a lot of like awards potential um, and Fincher. It's his first feature in a long time since Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. So um, it'll be cool to see how his style might have evolved a little bit. Maybe not. Uh, Minari for me, Steven Yoon. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. He's in this. I think it's semi autobiographical mm-hmm. um, about Korean immigrants living in rural Arkansas. Yeah. Um, not, man, not much details. A24. I feel like it's going to be a slow burn film and I'm excited to see it. I, I, we haven't heard much yet, but I can fe- I can see this being sort of like a burning slash shoplifters type film. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, New Mutants with Anya Taylor-Joy. I kind of feel like this might be a surprise hit. Again, this is another just a random bold prediction of mine. Mm. Um, and it's got a very troubled production history. Was one of the films that like people didn't know was going to happen with uh, Disney buying Fox. But from what I've read, Disney has sort of gone back to the director, Josh Boone, and said, hey, like you envision this as more of a horror film. Well, let's just go with that because yeah. whatever changes Fox told you to do, it didn't work. So let's just go with what you got. Yeah, which I, I have to applaud them for. You know, that's not something mm-hmm. that you often see. Normally they get kind of like on a track of trying to fix it and they don't consider that maybe the original idea is better. Nightmare Alley? Nightmare Alley, of course, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, this is one that apparently doesn't have too much of a supernatural element to it. It's more about... Um, well, we don't know that yet. He could just, you know, come up with something. But but he's he's said that it doesn't have the kind of stuff that you that we've seen from, like, right. um, Crimson Peak or most recently Shape of Water. So if it does have maybe a supernatural element, it might be very much in the background. So it'll, it'll be cool to see what he does with that. Um, yeah, we've got Tenet, obviously, Christopher Nolan. I mean, if the IMAX uh, extended previews any indication, this is going to be amazing. Um, Taylor Sheridan is back with Those Who Wish Me Dead. Um, his films tend to be really heavy. I imagine this is the same. So John Bernthal's in this again after Wind River. Angelina Jolie stars as a survival expert who is tasked with protecting a murder witness. While battling a forest fire. So yeah, <laughs> lots great, of, great. of uh, environmental and um, interpersonal challenges. Yep, yep. Top Gun Maverick. I'm super excited for that one. I like how your entry for this is just the lyrics to Danger Zone. <laughs> well, ki- kind of just like uh, uh, modified a little bit because I'm I'm like actually referencing Tom Cruise in this because he's the only person that can really make these movies really fly. No pun intended. <laughs> but with that uh, big list of like our most anticipated stuff from 2020, that's only like a taste of what we've got in the, the post up on the site. So uh, head on over to kinetoscope.ca if you want to check out the full thing. Uh, maybe build like a letterboxed list uh, out of those things and share it with us if you're a fan of that site. But also up on the site right now, We've got uh, Jason's review of 1917. Bad Boys for Life will be up there too. Yeah, Bad Boys for Life is going to be up there, but I've got my recommendations for Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime. 
And of course, if there's only like, what, three weeks until the Oscars. So we're going to have to get our official Oscar predictions up there uh, if we don't get them down in podcast form before that. Once again, thank you for listening to the Extra Buttery Podcast. My name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. 